Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North on this Wednesday, January 24, 2023. The Freedom Convoy two years ago today was just passing through Alberta, I believe, picking up steam on its way to Ottawa. So that's something to keep in mind there. Uh, we have, I believe, I'm just looking at our little uh, show production chat channel thing, whatever we call it here. And one of my colleagues has a new profile picture. Uh, send that over. Send that over to Sean Artem. I want to put that up on the screen for people. I kind of like that. So, uh, <laughs> I, I I'm very easily distracted, but you'll understand why in a few moments when we uh, put this up on the screen. But uh, you may have heard yesterday if you've been sleeping and uh, in a coma for the last uh, day and a half, perhaps you haven't. But yesterday we had the big ruling from the federal court, and specifically Justice Richard Mosley finding that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was unjustified. It was not keeping with the parameters and the legal test set out in the Emergencies Act itself. And more crucially, the measures that the federal government brought into effect under the Emergencies Act, like the freezing of bank accounts, the conscription of tow truck drivers, this whole suite of things violated the Constitution. It was unconstitutional. It violated a couple of provisions of the Charter of Rights and Freedom. So we are going to chat about that in a little bit more depth today now that myself and other guests here have had the chance to go through the 190-page ruling. I was very grateful yesterday that Christine Van Gein from the Canadian Constitution Foundation had like just like sped read for you know half an hour before coming on air and made far more sense than most uh, Canadian politicians ever would. But uh, we have her on now with the benefit of having been able to take a deeper dive into this. Christine Van Gein, it is... Uh, good to talk to you here. Thank you so much for coming back on. So uh, now that you've had the chance to look through this, I, I'm curious what your takeaway is, because obviously you agree with the outcome, I, I, as do I, but the reasoning behind it, do you find it it's sound and is it based on what you would have hoped as a lawyer it was going to be based on? Yeah, so these are very detailed reasons where Justice Mosley goes through not just some of the preliminary matters like standing and mootness, but really dives into the crux of invocation. So he gets, he, he spends a lot of time dealing with whether or not the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act was met. And then he looks at once finding that it was not met, then he goes through the measures enacted under the Emergencies Act. That's, that was the freezing of bank accounts and the prohibition on on gatherings and found that those were unconstitutional. So we can talk about any of those. He also gave a shout out to counsel. He said that uh, I, one of my favorite quotes was at the end of the decision. And he said that the advocacy was wonderful. And he said at the in, a, in kind of radical transparency, he said, when I this case started, I was leaning the other way. And but for the advocacy of groups like the Canadian Constitution Foundation and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, this case could have very well turned out differently. So to receive that type of mm -hmm. sort of shout out from the bench is uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. I, I wanted to ask about that, actually, because I, I've not read as many of these things as you have. I've, I've read probably more than it is healthy for a normal person, but <laughs> I, I've not really come across a judge being that transparent about their own evolution on, on a case like this, whereas he was basically saying, look, at the beginning, I was leaning this way. Is that as rare as it seems on the surface? It is. So judges will uh, will sometimes, if counsel is particularly good or particularly bad, uh, either give a, a nice or a mean shout out to the lawyer and say that this counsel was, mm -hmm. was exceptional or this counsel was bad. Uh, you don't want to be the <laughs> on the bad end because then well there was one of those in this case too i i saw it was, it was one yeah. of the groups canada frontline nurses just got yeah. a rather scathing rebuke by the judge yeah i i i was there in the courtroom uh so i saw what the lead up to this was and i frankly it was pretty well deserved i wasn't surprised that there was a some criticism from the bench of that one mm -hmm. particular lawyer because he i mean his argument started with a discussion about the prime minister wearing blackface which of course he did but it's not really but it's not, there's not really a legal <laughs> argument uh, in that it's more of a just by the way yeah anyway yeah. yeah it is rare to receive a kudos like that from the bench so we were very thrilled to get that. 
I wanted to ask you, because one of the things you and I spoke about when your uh, book came out, Pandemic Panic, not that long ago, was that freedom of assembly is a very underdeveloped area of law. And I, I was curious what your take was on, on if that's a bit more developed now or if that really weighed in in, in this decision in a meaningful way. So Justice Mosley wrote that there was no breach of the right to freedom of assembly because he said the right to freedom of assembly comes with a caveat, which is freedom of peaceful assembly. So he was not concerned with the gathering limits breaching that right because he said the the gathering limits prohibited participating in a gathering that may lead to the that could reasonably lead to a breach of the peace. So he said those gatherings are protected anyway. I mean, I, I do quibble with this because I I don't want to say too much because it may be a ground for, it may be involved in the appeal, but I understand the position that he took because it does have that caveat in the right, but I don't agree with the conclusion that that right was not violated. But the important thing to know about the right to freedom of assembly is that it is an underdeveloped right in our charter. There's not very much jurisprudence on the right to freedom of assembly. And we wrote in our book that the pandemic presented a number of opportunities to develop a legal test of what constitutes an assembly. Mm -hmm. In this case, it, there clearly was an assembly. Um, the question on whether or not something is an assembly more is geared to whether you know private gatherings like a Thanksgiving dinner would constitute an assembly under the charter. I think that it would, given that the text of the charter doesn't uh, delineate what the purpose of the gathering needs to be. But anyway, that's sort of not what this case was about. Um, he found there was no breach of the right to freedom of assembly. The breaches were the right to freedom of expression because a, a protest is an expressive event. And he found there was a breach to privacy rights that the um, disclosure of information from bank accounts was an unreasonable search and seizure that was unjustified. I wanted to ask about something that follows up on, on a discussion we started yesterday, which was the distinction between this and the Public Order Emergency Commission. And, and just to bring people up to speed here, the Public Order Emergency Commission was a, a creature of statute. It's mandated in the Emergencies Act itself that there must be this review. And at the end of that rather exhaustive set of hearings, the uh, commissioner, Paul Rouleau, found that the government was justified, that it basically complied with the tests set out in the Emergencies Act. Now, the federal court ha has found the opposite is true, that it was not justified. And I'm curious now that you've dug into the decision where that divergence took place and, and where, uh, if there was like a, a pivotal point, uh, Justice Mosley uh, disagreed with uh, d uh, basically Commissioner Rouleau. So he doesn't say that. I mean, it it's obvious that he is disagreeing. But I think from what seems like one of the key areas of disagreement is on the threshold of threats to the security of Canada. And uh, that is not what this case actually turned on. This case uh, turned first on whether or not a national emergency existed and, and Justice Mosley found that it did not. But the, the real question for lawyers who are interested in the Emergencies Act is this issue of what is a threat to the security of Canada. And in the legislation, the Emergencies Act, that is a term that the legislation says has the same definition as given to uh, the term in the CSIS Act, another piece of legislation. And the CSIS Act requires it there to be a threat or actual serious violence for a ideological or religious or political cause. And Justice Mosley disagreed with Justice Rouleau about what that about the flexibility of that definition. And Justice Mosley found that that term, because it's defined in the statute as having the same meaning as another statute, there can be only one reasonable interpretation. It cannot have the myriad of possible interpretations that the federal government has tried to give it, which includes things like um, economic harm uh, because there were border blockades. Justice Mosley found that economic harm is not a threat to the security of Canada under the CSIS Act. And it is so it is not a threat to the security of Canada under the Emergencies Act. And he said, perhaps, perhaps it should be. I don't know. Perhaps 
the legislature could amend it. If, if they want that to be the interpretation, they should amend the legislation. But it is not the role of the court to do that, to amend the legislation. But, you know, Justice Rouleau did accept the government's interpretation that threat to the security of Canada had a sort of different meaning under the Emergencies Act than it does under the CSIS Act. And the government has continued in the announcement of their appeal to make that case that it has this broader definition that actually includes economic harm. One of the things that I think is probably and, and will remain in the history books as the most heavy handed aspect of this is the freezing of bank accounts. I mean, after you and I spoke yesterday, I had Tom Marazzo on and also Eddie Cornell, two people whose bank accounts were frozen. Uh, Cornell was actually one of the applicants in this case. And this remains incredibly overbroad. There were, you know, the government sort of held as its defense to this. Well, we only froze this small handful of accounts, but the way the emergency orders were written, uh, they could have frozen many, many more. I mean, anyone who had donated a dime to the truckers would have been fair game as, as I read this and as most people would. So I'm curious how the judge really took that because I, I did see one section in particular that stood out in which Justice Mosley talked about the indiscriminate nature of it, that the government really didn't do anything to prevent uh, spouses uh, from being affected yeah. who had nothing to do with the convoy. So, okay, a few things. So the bank account freezing, Justice Mosley found was a violation of the charter's section eight guarantee to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure. Now in court, the government had argued that this was not even a search, which <laughs> is frankly preposterous. And Justice Mosley in the hearing basically told them to stop wasting their time and get to section one, whether or not it was a justified search, because he's like, I don't know, I, I forget his exact words, but in the hearing itself, he was not buying this argument that this was not a search. So we know that the, 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 the examination of financial records is a search. Like there is a lot of case law that says that. Financial records are part of the what we call the biographical core of personal information. It can reveal all kinds of personal details about a person. So, you know, like what your socioeconomic status is, uh, what your what your lifestyle choices are. I mean, frankly, I don't want my husband looking at my credit card bills, let alone Justin Trudeau. So clearly this is a search. The The orders required financial institutions to give this information to the government, to police, to CSIS, uh, and to the RCMP. So the other thing Justice, Justice Mosley said, this is a search. The other thing he found was he had to look at whether or not the search was minimally impairing. Uh, whether it was a, a justified limit under Section 1 of the Charter. One of those criteria is that it be a minimally impair minimal impairment of the right. And he found that the suspension of bank accounts and credit cards affected joint account holders and joint credit cards. Uh, so people who had absolutely nothing to do with the protest, if they were at home and um, Toronto or Alberta or British Columbia or some other part of the country having nothing to do with the protest. They might not be able to use their credit card or go get into their bank account to buy groceries or to buy medication. And that happened to some, to one of the applicants in this case that happened to him. Um, these family members had absolutely nothing to do with the protests, yet their accounts were frozen. That's not minimally impairing. And Justice Mosley found that the government took absolutely this to use his words. He said they, he found there appears to have been no effort to find a solution to that problem. Um, another thing that Justice Mosley found on the credit card and bank freezing was that there was no clear standard that applied to determine whether someone would be a designated person and have their account frozen. So the hmm. police say we only froze the accounts of people who were heavily involved in the protest. But the regulations don't actually say that. So as you pointed out, someone who had simply donated to or supported the convoy might be subject to being targeted. There was no clear standard. And Justice Mosley described the process for freezing the accounts. To quote him, he said, the police just making it up as they went along. 
And then he also found once your account was frozen, there was no process to question the determination of why your account was frozen or how to get it unfrozen. So a lot going on there that clearly a, a breach of section eight of your, your right to be free from an unreasonable search. And Justice Mosley found that, that that breach was not a justified limit on your charter rights. Were there any of the emergency measures that he defended that he said, you know, actually that wasn't unconstitutional? So he said that there was uh, no engagement of the Bill of Rights. He there, there was some argument on Bill of Rights. He was not interested in the arguments on international law. He found there was no breach of Section 7, which is the right to life, liberty, and security of person, because he said, while some people were detained uh, when they were arrested, uh, I, I believe he said they were arrested under the ordinary criminal code and their detention was uh, was brief. So because uh, one because one aspect I was interested in was, I mean, partially for selfish reasons, was the way that journalists were uh, excluded from even reporting on this. I mean, there were some very I mean, this would be something that would probably have to come up in a separate case. But there were excluded or, or pepper sprayed, Andrew. Well, both. I mean, in my in my <laughs> case, pepper spray, but but even excluded. And you had on the ground some very inconsistent uh, decisions like police saying that you don't have a right to walk down a sidewalk uh, because they've decided that. This is now an area that they're clearing out. And, you know, in, in my case, I, I had a, a couple of points where I was threatened with arrest, even though I like this is the day after uh, the protest had been dismantled. But I, I'm wondering when you look at, at this from your perspective, and I, I don't want you to give the government ideas here, but uh, the government had committed to appealing this basically before the ink was dry and before they had had a chance probably. To I, well, I don't think they expected to lose. Well, fair, fair enough. But but I'm curious where you think they'll try to dig in on this and where you think they'll try to base their appeal. So they can only appeal what are referred to as mistakes of law. I mean, that you, you can also appeal what are called mistakes of fact, uh, but that's a lot harder. It needs to be what's called a palpable and overriding error. And so there were a number of, finding of findings of fact in this decision that will be a difficult hurdle to overcome. So on this question of threat to the security of Canada, one of the things Justice Mosley found was that the only evidence of any threat of serious violence, which is part of the threshold, was in Coots, and he, in Coots, Alberta, where a number of people were arrested and had firearms. And Justice Mosley wrote that while obviously concerning, and of course it is concerning, those individuals were arrested before, I, I believe, before the, um, they, they were arrested under the ordinary criminal code. So part of the threshold is the requirement that no other law can be used to deal with the situation. And clearly these individuals were arrested under the existing criminal code. So the fact that Justice Mosley kind of found that the evidence showed there was only one threat of serious violence and it was addressed using the criminal law suggest, I mean, I think that that's a, I mean, that is a finding of fact. The government can't now bring new evidence to show, you know, there were other hardened terror, like terror cells mm -hmm. around Canada that were a huge threat. Uh, they're stuck with that finding and, and that can't really be overcome, at least not very easily. I think on errors, what they have to focus on is what are we call as lawyers errors in the law. And I mean, I don't think there are errors in law in this decision. I agree with this decision yeah. completely. But based on what Christia Freeland said in her press conference yesterday, it's it's it seems like the government continues to emphasize this notion of threat to the security of Canada be and the standard including economic harm so they seem set on that argument but i will say before they can even get to that justice mosley had already found that the use of the law was unjustified because he found that there was mm -hmm. not a national emergency and and that alone was enough to find that the 
the invocation was unreasonable. Yeah, and and the government's insistence that economic harm even qualifies uh, as all of these things under the Emergencies Act, I, I think, is very, very questionable in in a lot of ways. I, I just I wanted to just before we go here, draw attention to uh, if you're following along at home, everyone, para three hundred eight and three hundred nine of the I see Christine's following along she's uh, I see her looking for the monitors there I, basically what he's saying here is that there was no real distinction between people that had a truck that were blocking a border effectively or blocking Wellington Street and people that just wanted to stand on Parliament Hill with a Canadian flag and and stand up for freedom as is always legal is a legitimate form of protest and that was something that it came up slightly in the public order emergency commission where commissioner Rouleau asked at a couple of points if there was ever an alternative presentative. You can continue your protest, but here's how. And I, I appreciated that Justice Mosley did dig in on that, where he said, hang on, someone who wanted to stand there as an individual and not block a street was treated the same way as someone that parked a semi in front of Parliament Hill. Yeah, so this is in the part of uh, the decision that's dealing with charter infringement. So mm -hmm. the way the Emergencies Act was invoked, the government created regulations, and one of them was a restriction on participating in a gathering that could reasonably lead to a breach of the peace or materially supporting the gathering or traveling to that gathering. And insofar as the prohibition would, would stop you from sitting in a semi-truck on Wellington blasting your horn, perhaps uh, that might have been okay. But this prohibition was not minimally impairing, which is what is required for it to be constitutional. It did not, it captured too many people. So yes, it captured the person who had been spent three weeks on Wellington Street, which is not, you can't blockade infrastructure indefinitely. That We are a rule of law country. You cannot do that. That is not protected expression. But it captured that person, but it also captured a person who, had a a poster that they wanted to walk with to Capitol Hill or Parliament Hill and stand on the grass, which is completely protected expression. So it captured too many people. It was not minimally impairing, which is one of the, the requirements of a law if it's going to infringe on a right, which this did. Well, I'll give you again the congratulations well earned that uh, I gave you yesterday on the show. And now uh, the judge uh, himself has also lauded you for your work, which uh, I hadn't seen yesterday. So uh, well done all around on this, uh, Christine. I look forward to having you back on as this uh, case proceeds. I mean, the best case scenario at this point would be for the Court of Appeal or the Federal Court of Appeal to say there's no appeal here, right? Um, I'm not sure if they get leave to appeal as of right or not, but I think certainly if they are, if leave is the permission of the court to appeal, if I think that they would get it. I think an interesting question is if, if, if whatever the outcome is at the court of appeal, I mean, the timeline that we're looking at is probably six months from now, an appeal could be heard. And then six months from now, we might get a decision. But so if a we year get, until there's a federal court of appeal decision, you're, you're thinking. I think at a minimum. And then when we talk about any possible, if there's any possible delays, how close are we pushing it to an election? Because mm -hmm. I do think if there's a change of government, the desire to appeal this decision will perhaps be lacking. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. But 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 assuming just that it goes through the normal channels here, you've got a hearing under the Federal Court of Appeal, Federal Court of Appeal decision, and then potentially beyond that Supreme Court of Canada. How long would that add to the timeline? A another six months for the appeal and then six months for yeah. the decision. So, Although yeah, this and you're right. So we're well into, I mean, a year into the, the next government's term, possibly, whether there's a change or not. So uh, ideally here, there would be a bit of contrition from the federal government. But right now, we're we're not seeing that. I think they'll, they'll probably rush it because I think they can read polls as well. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, well, we'll get the uh, political analysis next time. Christine Van Gein, Litigation Director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Well done on this, and thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you. All right. If I, if I keep having her on, uh, eventually she's just going to take over the show because she has such a, an incredible way of distilling down these things into understandable terms. But I, I wanted to switch to the political side of this for a moment here, because uh, one of the things that's easy to forget for a lot of people is how much of a tectonic shift in politics there was at the time of the uh, Freedom Convoy. And we had Aaron O'Toole, who was the leader of the conservative, well, leader is 
questionable, but uh, who, who nominally led the Conservative Party of Canada at the time, who was very weak on the Freedom Convoy, would not say whether he was going to meet with the truckers, wouldn't say if he was supporting it, uh, would say that we need to get more truckers vaccinated and that's how we're going to solve the trucker vaccine mandate. And his lack of support for the Freedom Convoy was a big reason that Aaron O'Toole was ousted. And the rapid pace at which things then evolved with his replacement with Candace Bergen, who was the interim leader, had been O'Toole's deputy leader, but broke ranks with him to support the Freedom Convoy in a statement that was published. I, I can't remember the exact night. I believe it was on the eve of the convoy's arrival in Ottawa, if memory serves. And then Pierre Polyev, who famously turned around on the steps on the way into that one fateful caucus meeting and said that, uh, well, in his own way, that he was supportive of the convoy and wasn't going to let the media malign those who were individual bad actors because he said, in aggregate, this is a peaceful protest. Well, Candace Bergen, who is now retired from politics, had a, a line on X, formerly Twitter, that uh, was actually somewhat moving. She says, I recall vividly and with pride when our Conservative caucus made the collective decision to oppose the Emergencies Act being used against peace-loving Canadians protesting liberal overreach. We decided in that moment that we wanted to be on the right side of history, and that we are. Uh, Candace Bergen, I have uh, plucked her out of political retirement for uh, the next 10 minutes or so. She joins me on the line now. Candace, wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on today. Great to see you again. Thanks for asking me. You had, I'll say it was actually quite a, a moving post you made to social media yesterday where you talked about how proud you were when the Conservative caucus banded together and uh, decided to oppose the Emergencies Act. And I've made the point in the past that this is not, you could, you could oppose the convoy and also oppose the Emergencies Act, although I know many of uh, the people in your party and yourself were supportive of, of this protest and, and large parts of it. But why were you and your caucus so firmly against the Emergencies Act when this first came up? Well, Andrew, you have to remember the context of, of the moments that we were in. Um, and, and you're right, many of us supported the reasons that the convoy were, were there, that the, that the people were there. Many of those people were our constituents, but we also knew that they needed to head off the streets. They needed to go home. That was our, our wish. But we wanted the Prime Minister to listen to them. That did not seem to be happening. So when the Emergencies Act was invoked, we had to make a decision and there was a lot of pressure. You'll remember the media, the mainstream media, not all media, but most of the media was saying this was the right thing to do and we had to support it. And so we came together as a caucus, which is what I find these MPs that I've been so privileged to have worked with, we do so well. We came together, we had a really good conversation in our caucus heard all sides and we heard, should we support it? Should we be fully against it? Should we ask for an amendment? And, you know, without uh, breaking any kind of cabinet or caucus confidentiality, I can just tell you what an incredible conversation and discussion we had as a caucus back in February, 2022, talking about freedom, talking about our constituents and what we needed to do as parliamentarians. And we talked about history and where we wanted to be when all of this was said and done in five years, 10 years, 50 years. And we decided overwhelmingly, and we, uh, we were very proud and very strongly supporting, uh, working and fighting and speaking against the Emergencies Act. That history aspect is incredibly important. I, I made the point a while back on my show that, you know, at one point, William Lyon McKenzie was a traitor who was in exile. And then you fast forward a, a decade and he's a member of parliament. I mean, things can change. And with the benefit of hindsight, even the judge said this in the ruling yesterday, you can get a, a more full picture of things. And that seems to be happening here as well. We're in the moment. You had a lot of anger, of course, in, in many directions. But the further away we get from this, that there's this surreal aspect when you think, wait, did, did the government actually freeze people's bank accounts? Yeah. Did, like, and, and that was the Emergencies Act. That's what was what they did here. So when you talk about being on the right side of history, I, I know it's thankless being in, in politics, and, and you had to bear a lot of the criticism from the media and the left for this, but I, I do think you're going to get that in the end. Well, you know, and that's gratifying, absolutely. But what I'm thinking about today, and my heart just goes out to the people, the people who are still suffering because they were part of that convoy, they supported, supported the convoy. The fact is that the government's position on the protesters, most of the media's 
false betrayal of our portrayal of what happened in Ottawa have really set a lot of Canadians who were not in Ottawa against the protesters. And, you know, I know even when I would go home and talk to people and I would say, listen, yes, they need to leave the streets of Ottawa, but these people are happy. They are peaceful. You know, you look at the protests that are going on right now supporting Hamas. Mm -hmm. and how different those protests are being port portrayed. And yet people in uh, throughout the country were being told that these were violent, hateful protests and that the Emergencies Act had to be invoked because they were so dangerous. These are the people, my, my heart goes out to the people who were, have been lied to by their own government and the media, and then the people who were so falsely maligned. So, I mean, I'm really, really proud and glad our caucus took the stand that we did. But, you know, we need to learn from this, Andrew. And if we don't learn from this, uh, I'm afraid that the whole agenda of wedge, stigmatize and divide Canadians uh, will be won by Trudeau. If, if we don't learn from this, which thankfully I believe that we are, I see what our, our leader Pierre Polyev is doing and caucus is doing, but I do worry about our country as far as the media uh, you know, I honestly, Andrew, I'm glad that you've had me on. I would love to ask some men members of the media. You know, I was grilled by Evan Solomon. I was absolutely grilled. How dare you not uh, support the Emergencies Act? And how dare you support these people? Mm. You know, what does he have to say for himself now? You know, how about some of the writers in the Globe and Mail, for example? Where is their accountability? And I, I feel that unless there is some real reckoning, government will be held to account, Andrew. This government will be held in terms mm -hmm. of the vote, they will be heard, held to account uh, at some point. But there are many people, elites, academics, you know, the Ottawa bubble. We know the Ottawa bubble. So I'm really happy, proud that we were on the right side. I'm so proud of the caucus that I served with incredible members of parliament. But we better learn from this. You are right. I mean, the media malfeasance throughout the entire protest, and I i mean, I'd say the entire COVID era was quite something. I mean, there was one Globe and Mail reporter that uh, posted online that there was a wrecking ball outside Trudeau's office, but it was actually the the weight holding the Canadian flag there uh, that was, you know, like the size of, you know, my fist or something. And then you also had CBC musing that this was all some foreign Russian financed operation. And there hasn't really been ever a reckoning, let alone an apology from these people. And I, I think a lot of folks have really expected this could all just be kept in the past. Well, and I guess in what, in a sense, their reckoning has come and that the, most of the media in Canada has lost all credibility, especially mm -hmm. with, I would say 40 and under, uh, they have no credibility. And, uh, and so 40 and under are using their dollars to show where, where they want to get their news from. And it's not the CBC's, mm -hmm. uh, it's frankly not the CTV's, probably not the, not none of the mainstream. So I guess there is that reckoning. But, you know, I do, I do remain hopeful, Andrew, as much as I'm, I'm frustrated as I look back and I think that there still is a false malignment of actually peace-loving Canadians who came to Ottawa asking, just asking for their Prime Minister to say, mm -hmm. I hear you. And yes, we are not going to continue with these mandates. There, there will be an end. And this was all we were asking from him. And I, I know this is what these Canadians were asking for. They were falsely maligned. So although I feel, I feel a, a, a real sense of injustice was done for them, I, I am hopeful for our country. Um, you know, when you speak to people one-on-one, -on -one, people are good. People in Canada, I, I believe, are genuinely good people. And what they're looking for is leadership. And that's what I, I think we're all hoping is going to happen after the ne next election. We're going to have leadership that uh, will make decisions in the best interest of the entire country, not just to wedge, stigmatize and divide for his own or their own political gain. Were you surprised that the NDP went the way they did on this? You know, the party of Tommy Douglas, the party that has uh, put itself in protests more times than anyone could count. Were, were you surprised that they ended up? I mean, Jagmeet Singh has tried to do a bit of revisionism here and said it was only reluctantly, but they were quite supportive of this at the time. And I, I'm curious if that when you were in the thick of it there as, as leader of the opposition, if that shocked you in any way. 
Well, we'd seen uh, Jagmeet and the NDP just placate the liberals and, and basically follow along for so long. You know, Andrew, the irony is the Liberal Party has strayed so far from what it was. It is not mm -hmm. the party of Jean Chrétien, uh, you know, of even Paul Martin, John Manley. Uh, it is not the party that most traditional liberals knew. And I would say the NDP have very much strayed from what they were as well. They are not the party of Tommy Douglas. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe times are changing and we're all changing and adjusting. But the center uh, seems to have moved. And uh, the people who thought we were in the center now see uh, that many who were were left liberals, but more in the center have moved far, far to the to the left. And then the NDP are there. We don't even know where they are, actually. They're they're not they're left, but they're not left in terms of supporting workers or protesters, unless the protesters are protesters that they support. You know, they haven't. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the other thing we haven't even really talked about when you compare the protesters that were were in Ottawa in early 2022 versus the protests, the anti-Semitic protests and the hateful protests we have seen gone, going on across the country in support of the terrorist uh, Hamas organization. You look at the comparative of the two and the media coverage and the government response to the to the two different types of protest. So what what does that tell you? Yeah, no, that's very well said. And this court ruling is, I think, vindication for a lot of people, uh, yourself included, but it's not the end of the story, certainly, when you talk about the media and the fact that the government has still been unrepentant about this. So we'll hopefully see a similar reaction to the Court of Appeal and, and all the way to the Supreme yes. Court. But uh, I, I realize I've, I've plucked you back into the political world <laughs> here, and I, I'm so grateful you did it, uh, Candace Berg. And I, we always get people saying uh, how much they miss you in politics, but I, I hope you're doing well. And I, I thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Andrew. Great to be on. Uh, happy to do it anytime. That was Candace Bergen, the former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Now, uh, one thing I, I want to make a, a point of here, and I, I asked Candace near the end about Jagmeet Singh's role in all of this. The NDP has been uh, incredibly weak. No, that was the sentence. They've just been incredibly weak. But uh, on this in particular, and, and that revisionism from Jagmeet Singh is kind of fascinating. Here's him saying yesterday that it was only reluctantly that he backed the use of the Emergencies Act. Uh, from the beginning, we've said, we said and we maintain that the reason we were in that crisis was a direct failure of Justin Trudeau's leadership and also other levels of government that failed to act to take the, the challenge presented seriously. Their inaction resulted in a serious crisis where we reluctantly supported the invocation of the emergencies uh, measures. We said that that was uh, something that we reluctantly supported. Uh, and then uh, we also were very open to the Rulo Commission and the work and the accountability measures to assess whether it was the right decision and what needs to be done differently in the future. The ruling has been passed down. I understand there will be an appeal of that ruling and we will follow closely to see the outcome of that appeal. Reluctantly, okay, uh, here's Jagmeet Singh two years ago when he was announcing his support for the use of the Emergencies Act. With the War Measures Act, uh, you know, then NDP leader Tommy Douglas said it was like using a sledgehammer to, create, to crack a peanut. Now, of course, today in Ottawa, I mean, the, we, we have seen a bunch of uh, aggressions of all sorts, but no one has been kidnapped. No one has died up to now. So I guess my question is, how will history, uh, you know, remember you as NDP leader with this Emergencies Act um, and, and all the uh, entrenches to uh, civil liberties right now? I think it's really important to reflect on the War Measures Act for just a moment. The War Measures Act was a sledgehammer. And, and that's why there were serious problems with its, uh, of its application, because it was a very broad and overly powerful piece of legislation. That's why it was repealed and a new legislation was brought forward. The Emergencies Act is nothing like the sledgehammer of the War Measures Act. It's, it's not at all the same. It doesn't even include the powers for the military. It doesn't include military at all. It's a very different piece of legislation, and it is much more targeted and specific. And so it's a very different time. Oh, well, it's different. It's no big deal. It's not like it's the War Measures Act. I, I'm not hearing that reluctance that uh, Mr. Singh speaks so fondly of yesterday about the Emergencies Act. And uh, let's go back to 2021. Now, this is a visual 
a visual display here. I have written to Justin Trudeau asking him to consider using the Federal Emergencies Act to help Ontario. This could help make sure vaccines are getting to people who need them and help sick workers get paid when they stay home. We must do everything possible to keep people safe. And then there is a letter there. I, I'm not going to read the letter because I understand some people listen to the show when they're driving and I don't want you to veer into the ditch uh, because you've fallen asleep by me reading the dulcet tones of Jugmeet Singh to you. But here we have him saying it's a national emergency that warrants the Emergencies Act because the federal government isn't getting enough vaccines to Ontario. And he wants us to believe that it was only reluctantly that the NDP backed the use of the Emergencies Act two years ago. So uh, Jagmeet Singh has uh, once again shown that he has no spine. As I joked when I saw him riding his bike, it was a, a feat of physical brilliance that I still don't quite understand how the kinetic, uh, how the kinetic movements were even possible without so much as a backbone to allow him to steer that bicycle down Wellington Street. But uh, Singh says, oh, no, 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 I didn't really, I only kind of sort of iffy is ish sort of along with it, but uh, the record shows something else there. I, I won't, I, I played a Christian Freeland clip yesterday. I had two more of them today, but again, I, I'll, I'll spare the audience and won't, won't uh, do it here. But I did mention at the beginning of this program, something had made me chuckle. This was a, a graphic that apparently was made by one of the members of our team here. This is now, this is now, that's oh, actually a hate symbol. Yeah, the, the show is going to get canceled by the CRTC podcast registry before long. Uh, that is like a new Canadian flag. If you're listening to the podcast, it's got a uh, bouncy castle in place of the maple leaf. So uh, the Canadian flag was already enough of a hate symbol. This one is uh, even more so. So uh, be careful where you fly that thing. You never know what might happen to you. But what's fascinating here is that we have a government that has been so utterly unrepentant about this. A finding from the federal court that the constitutional rights of Canadians were not respected. Now, it's interesting to square that with a comment Justin Trudeau made on Valentine's Day 2022. Take a look. We're not using the Emergencies Act to call in the military. We're not suspending fundamental rights or overriding the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We are not limiting people's freedom of speech. We are not limiting freedom of peaceful assembly. We are not preventing people from exercising their right to protest legally. Ooh, okay, we're not ignoring your charter right is that do, do i have that right i'm just looking at the yeah no that he said that okay so here we have a leader doing what i had at the time remarked as being a little bit odd and i said if a government has to like pinky swear and promise to you that it's not trampling on your constitutional rights there's a good chance it is trampling all over your constitutional rights. And now a judge has at long last agreed. So uh, we're gonna continue to follow this along. As Christine Van Gyne said, it's likely to be six months until there's even a hearing on this and then another six months to get a decision. And then you may have beyond that a Supreme Court. Here's a question that I wanna put to conservative leader Pierre Polyev next time I speak to him. If you form government and this appeal is underway, will you commit to dropping the appeal? That's a question that I have for the conservative leader and I would love to hear an answer. So if you run into him at one of those photo lines he does, please ask and report back if you get an answer. I'll send an email off to his office once I get off air as well. I just thought of that question, but it seems like a good one. I wanted to shift from one trampling of your rights to another here. Uh, we have on an ongoing basis here, the federal government going after the rights of law-abiding gun owners in this country. We have a so-called buyback plan in which the government is going to buy things back that it never once owed in the first place. They're still trying to find a vendor to manage this buyback program. This was announced, just to put this into perspective here, just shy of four years ago. And still, there is no program in existence yet. And the fact that they haven't found a vendor yet, normally I would uh, accuse governments of dragging their heels and slowing things down. In this case, I'm gonna say, go as slow as you want to, guys. I am in no rush to have my property confiscated. Rod Giltaka is the executive director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. It's always good to talk to him. And he joins us now. Rod, welcome back, sir. You, your video looks better than mine. You've got, uh, you've got that good podcast set up there. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. 
So again, I mean, normally I never, never want government to uh, be mired in bureaucracy. In this case, I'll kind of make an exception for it here. But, but legitimately, what is the holdup here? Because originally, this was supposed to not just be in motion, but done by 2022. By May of 2022, there was supposed to be every one of these guns picked back up by the government. We're now two years beyond that, and not a single gun has been confiscated. Well, the holdup is is that the challenge to doing a, a national buyback in a country like Canada, unlike, let's say, New Zealand, Canada is 10 million square kilometers. So there's a lot of challenges there. The uh, The government has tried a lot of different things, uh, ended up uh, being headed off at the pass, a lot of dead ends, right? The first, they wanted Canada Post to do it. Well, first, they wanted the RCMP to do it. And they're like, uh, no, thanks. Uh, we have to this other thing that we're doing called policing. Uh, then they wanted Canada Post to do it. And they're like, you want people in, in, in Canada post outlets to be sitting on hundreds of apparently assault style firearms and our employees are the only thing, thing between these firearms and, and the criminal element. Um, and now they're asking gun stores to do it, which gets really, really tricky. Yeah. And I mean, you obviously have, I, I mean, gun stores, as you and I have spoken about it, as I've spoken about on the show, ha have been among those most directly harmed by this because they've been saddled with inventory that they've been able to do nothing with, very little communication from the government, very little confiscation or, well, consultation. There's a Freudian slip. But uh, the one point that I would stress there is that they're also generally opposed to this. So they don't want to be agents of this confiscation regime. Well, it puts them in a really, really terrible position. If you think, you know, they can't sell handguns anymore. Handguns and handgun ammunition was was big business for a lot of gun stores. They can't sell uh, a wide variety of uh, of semi-autos that they used to. So their the their their inventory, their possible inventory, or the products that they can carry has been drastically, dramatically reduced. And then the government says, "Hey, you know, here's a revenue stream for you uh, in helping us helping people comply with the law." So I think that on one hand, you have a lot of gun store owners going, you know, I could really use the business. On the other hand, it's like, well, do I want to destroy my business by giving in and being an agent of confiscation on behalf of the liberals against the people who I want to be my customers? I'm, I'm glad I'm not in that position, but I would not be surprised if the overwhelming majority of gun store owners decide they want nothing to do with this. Yeah, and I think one thing that was really, really encouraging to see is Alberta and Saskatchewan take the stand they did and say, you know what, you may control the criminal law, but we control how police resources in our province are deployed, and we are not going to allow police to engage in this function. I was hoping, you know, it would just magically cause this national ripple effect and every province was going to do it. That hasn't happened, though. So right now, if the Liberals had their way, we would still in the majority of the country see this brought to fruition whenever this program comes with, uh, you know, legal appeals notwithstanding. Well, yeah, um, if the Liberals had their way, I mean, but I, I think they're handling it like they handle most things, right? They'll come out with a big <laughs> press release, full court press. This is what we're doing. And this is exactly what we said we were going to do. And that's exactly what we're doing. And we're keeping Canadians safe and doing all this garbage that they've done for eight and a half years. And then when reality shows up, they completely fold like a cheap suit like that. That is that is that is exactly what the liberals have done, I guess, other than pot. But <laughs> if you think of it, only the liberal government, the Liberal Party of Canada can lose mon money selling weed. Um, but it's it's all been about press releases and, you know, I I don't know, gaslighting, I guess you could say. But th this time it's different because this time the challenge is so great that it would take a highly competent group of people to make this happen. And lucky, I guess, for gun owners for now, that that doesn't exist in the liberal government. So I guess we're gonna have to see where it goes from here. I just wanted to get you to give an update, if you could, on, on where the legal side of this is, because I know there were a couple of challenges going on. I know you've had some unsuccessful rulings, but is there still a, a glimmer of hope on that path? Well, we are appealing. And I can't, uh, you know, I can't claim to say I'm not envious of what's <laughs> what happened yesterday. Um, but I think if, uh, if anything, what an interesting time in Canadian history to even just be monitoring the judiciary, right? On one hand, the government comes in because of a, of a, of a, uh, an unrelated event, which was the impetus for the, the assault style weapons ban, which was Nova Scotia, where this, um, this, uh, perpetrator had smuggled all of his firearms that were used in those shootings from the United States illegally. And then Trudeau's like, uh, we need to ban guns in Canada. Um, and then you have a court 
saying, well, you have no property rights. You have no rights of self-defense. That's another charter question that we asked. And we had a question that was very clear and we still believe we clearly should have won on that, which is the government, it was the uh, the OIC, the order in council was, was ultra varies. It's very similar to the ruling that came out yesterday. The government didn't have that authority. So they slap us all down on, on all counts with a very scant uh, decision. And then a month later, a federal court decides that it is unreasonable and unconstitutional for the government to ban sh plastic shopping bags and plastic straws. I mean, if that was a line too far. And then we we have this ruling, you know, yesterday, right? So uh, it's the judiciary is all over the place. The the moral compass in this country in so many corners is spinning. Mm -hmm. Can't find you know north anywhere apparently. So um, I hope that we'll be successful on appeal because um, again, property rights self-defense issues and the role of government in our society all at stake in that case well and the one point that i i think has always remained important here is that a political solution is always available it's always possible for the government to one day snap its fingers and say we're no longer proceeding with this now that's unlikely under this government but if this process is delayed and delayed and delayed until past the next election uh, another government i mean let's be real the conservatives are the ones most likely at this point to form government could still say this is not happening and put it dead in its tracks, could it not? Well, it's gonna take legislation on some, it's really complicated how the liberals have done their OIC and Bill C-21 and um, C-71 before that. Uh, the order in council that could be struck down, but it anyway, it gets, it gets quite complicated. So it may require legislation, which will require a conservative majority government. But yeah, the in Canada, as I've said, <laughs> ad nauseum, in Canada, using the British parliamentary system, our government can do pretty much whatever it wants to anybody it wants. The the courts are, I'm not gonna say, uh, you know, powerless, but they have a lot less power than they have, say, in the United States. And then of course they're influenced. I think we can all agree on that at some level. Um, but the, yeah, the whole system gets, gets, gets pretty complex, but what one government does another government can undo is really the rule of thumb in our system, even though those powers are, are pretty dramatic, but that's a political solution is uh, one easy, the easiest way, the easiest path, I guess you could say, to Canadian gun owners just being left alone and getting their property back. Rod Giltak, ahead of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. All right, that does it for us for today. We will be back tomorrow to close out the week here on Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.